This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 7th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. How national IDs would work in practice may mean the power we give to the government to fight illegal immigration may be next applied to the products we buy, how we travel, and other activities we take for granted. Christopher Calabrese, legislative counsel at the American Civil Liberties Union, says a national biometric ID reverses the proper relationship between people and government. He spoke at a Cato Capitol Hill briefing April 23rd. This massive system that we're going to have to to build, I call it the worst combination of the TSA and the DMV that you've ever seen. I mean, it really is. This is a federal identification system, federal workers identifying you similar to the DMV. Now, if there are errors anywhere in the system, you've got those same DMV delays. You've got the bird, you know, hours to fix the problems, delays in getting benefits. These delays can come from a lot of places. You cannot have the source documents they want. Lots of folks who got caught up in Hurricane Katrina lost everything, including their birth certificate and their, or their passport and all these relevant documents. Suddenly, they are literally unable to prove their identity. And that problem has to be fixed and that will b- before they can get this biometric ID card. Here's a, an example from the real ID days. Bill Caterini spent 33 years with the Chicago Fire Department. He first came to the attention of a newspaper columnist because he raised a lot of money to build a a memorial for fallen firefighters. Well, he ran into a problem when he he wanted to renew his driver's license. It seemed that about 60 years ago, he had lied. Excuse me, not 60 years ago, about 40 years ago. He had changed his birth date from 1944 to 1943. Because when Bill started as a firefighter, you had to be 21 to take the firefighter exam. And it only came up like every eight years. So he was only 20. And he didn't want to wait eight years to, to get to get it. So he fudged his, his driver's license, became a firefighter. And, you know, and that was the end of the story until this real ID requirement said that we've got to make all of these systems uniform. And suddenly Bill had an error he couldn't fix. You know, countless trips to the DMV, he was unable to get it fixed. When the column was written, Bill had been driving without a a license for like two months. Now, imagine if Bill had been waiting to get a job. Um, These errors are not at all uncommon. The Social Security Administration estimates that its its database has an error rate of about 4%. Now, 150 million workers times 4% is about 6 million people. That's a lot of errors that have to be fixed, a lot of people that are waiting to get a job. Um, And and then when you flood the system with people trying to fix their records, it becomes even worse. The bureaucracy becomes even harder. And this also has some less obvious effects for for everyone. For the error rate for non-native-born U.S. citizens in these systems tends to be about 30 times worse than the errors for native-born citizens because you know, they had to pull in information from the old INS and from a lot of different sources. So that's not just bureaucracy, but enormous potential for discrimination. I mean, if you're an employer and you face frequent hassles in hiring a particular type of lawful citizen, how long is it going to be before you just start shying away from employing anybody who even looks like an immigrant? Because it's like you just don't need the hassle. And, and that's, a, that's a real potential for discrimination. Jim has already talked about the cost potential. I, uh, one of the examples I like to use there, which is the transportation worker identification credential, which is a biometric ID that port workers need for, before they can, they can get a job, 
about a, covers about a million transportation workers, and it's cost DHS so far to implement it about $1.9 billion. When you get up to a million workers, there aren't that many economies of scale. If you multiply that by 150 million U.S. workers, it would be something like $185 billion. So add to the indignity that you will be paying. I assure you, this isn't coming all out of federal tax dollars. There will be fees associated with this. You will get to pay for your, to build your bureaucracy. Um, Jim also talked about some of the problems with biometrics and how they're untested. We'll, I'll give you another example of that, which, which would be a problem if you were a worker. The GAO reported, reported in October that the Census Department had fingerprinted all their temporary workers, which is what they're supposed to do to make sure that nobody has a, criminal, a problem in their criminal background. It's a, it's, a, it's a basic check. But what they found was after two hours of training, Census Department workers could not get usable fingerprints off of a fifth of the people that they fingerprinted. So these were people who had been trained for hours, and they could not get a usable print. Imagine the kind of print your employer is going to get, who, or the person in HR who's never even looked at a fingerprint before. These are not easy problems. These are problems that have never been addressed. And they, the, problem, the burden of solving them will fall on the backs of, of workers. So in addition, the impacts, there are going to be in particular groups who have even more, this has even more of an impact just on sort of each as an individual. Um, Jim mentioned the central database. Anybody who reasonably fears having their information in a central database is going to be much worse off after this system, under this system. This is from a Wisconsin newspaper. Mary had a restraining order against her horribly abusive ex-husband who had threatened her with a gun. He had already located her once after their separation and had threatened to burn down her house. Now, now she was starting over. She'd moved to a new town. She'd gotten a new job. She'd even remarried. But once again, her ex-husband found her, all because a police officer had searched a DMV database and given her ex the information. Now, if there's a national database, you, it's very hard to go somewhere and hide if your information is always accessible if somebody can get in that database. There's a reason that victims of domestic violence have long opposed national ID cards, and it's really not hard to understand it. I mean, Jim has mentioned, or I think Stuart mentioned, the, the mark of the beast. There are religious groups who specifically object to bi being biometrically fingerprinted, and there are also a number of religions who object to all kinds of biometric capture, like photo capture, uh, Mennonites, Amish, Native American religions, uh, some Muslim women. Uh, they object to having their pictures taken uh, I mean, the Mennonites in Missouri actually feared that they were going to be forced to leave the country if Real ID was implemented, because it was a choice between their religious beliefs or their ability to, you know, get a license to access services. I mean, these are, these are real costs to these groups. I mean, the ultimate example of this is when these kind of systems are used to directly target individual groups. I, I, to cite a particularly terrible example, National ID cards played a key role in, in identifying Tutsis as part of the Rwandan genocide. In 1994, Hutus killed an estimated 500,000 to a million people, most of them Tutsis, many of them identified by their racial identifier on their national ID card. But perhaps the greatest fear in the United States is not so much a, is, is not a genocide. Um, it's the misuse of identification systems to control the U.S. domestic population. I mean, the control over what you do and where you go can be almost infinite. 
The most recent example of this is a current Arizona bill that's likely to become law shortly. It requires police officers to attempt to determine the immigration status of a person whenever there is a reasonable suspicion that the person is unlawfully present. Several examples, some examples of reasonable suspicion of undocumented status that have been upheld by the courts include not having proper identification and being evasive. Under the law, a person would be presumed to be in the country lawfully if they could show valid government ID or tribal identification. This sounds an awful lot like you should carry your papers around if you don't want to be hassled by the police. It's possible to carry this logic even further if you have a biometric identification card. If we build this infrastructure, our rights to movement, to buying things, can be carved up and taken away. I'll give you another example. In the recent health care bill, there is a requirement that in order to participate in the health care exchange, you've got to verify your citizenship. Now, the health care exchange is not a subsidy. This is private money and a private contract between you and a private insurer. The only thing the exchange is doing is sort of bringing you all to one place, sort of like the mall for health care. But the government has interposed a verification requirement there. Now, it seems like a short step, at least to me from that, to combating illegal immigration by saying, well, let's make it hard for them to buy things and purchase things here. So let's say that you can't buy things at the mall unless you can prove your legal status. I mean, we're already saying that, that immigrants shouldn't be able to buy services in this country and engage in private contracts. Well, that's not hard to do with the biometric ID system. I mean, these identity controls exist now. You don't need a pure national ID to make this happen. I mean, you see it in, in air travel all the time, obviously. We're always being asked to show our identification systems. But it, the creep that will occur if it becomes mandatory is, is, I think, noteworthy and very different. And I couldn't let this discussion of impacts on each of us go by without mentioning everybody's favorite system of control for identification, and that's the government watch list. I mean, we've got a terrorist list right now. According to the Department of Justice, Department of Justice Inspector General, it's more than a million names long. It's used as part of the air travel system, for the financial system in some cases, disseminated to state and local police. These largely secret lists are created according to a secret standard with no formal process for removal. So as mission creep starts, the watch lists are right behind it, steadily increasing the state's power to decide where you can go and your danger of offending the wrong person and ending up on a list. Christopher Calabrese is legislative counsel at the American Civil Liberties Union. You can watch the full April 23rd Hill Briefing at Cato.org.